YWCA OKC's limited series podcast dedicated to Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Today's episode features two of our favorite people. Brandon Pasley serves as the Senior Director of Specialized Training at YWCA OKC, and today we'll listen as Brandon interviews a legend. Anne Lawrence is a pioneer in the field of victim services with over 30 years of experience working with survivors. Ms. Lawrence retired last year from Oklahoma State University in Oklahoma City as the Department Head of Social Services and Associate Professor of Crime Victim Survivor Services. Anne has been recognized by the United States Department of Justice for outstanding dedication and service to crime victims and is a recipient of the Wise Woman Award by the Native Alliance Against Violence. These are only a few of her accolades and she will likely be very annoyed that I shared even that much. Anne Lawrence continues to be a champion for survivors of intimate partner and sexual violence. And I am thrilled to share some of her insight with all of you. How did you first get started with advocacy and activism? Um, I sort of fell into it, actually. It was not a career design. In fact, it wasn't even a real field when I got into it. Um, I was teaching college psychology at in Amarillo and invited a, a lecturer from the newly formed Rape Crisis Center to come in and lecture the class. They needed a full-time executive director they were hiring their first director and um i needed a full-time job so that just happened and i fell into the field and have never looked back how long did the activism follow from the advocacy i don't think it ever stops i think it's a permanent fixture so you that that fixture has continued since the 70s what has it been like during the evolution of advocacy and activism since the 70s? Um, It's been an interesting ride. I've certainly seen lots of strides being made, especially in the field of advocacy. There there were no degrees related to this field. Uh, We weren't even called advocates at the time. That's a relatively new term, I mean, considering the whole history. Um, And and so I'm I'm pleased with the professionalism of the field. People are trained now, well-trained in trauma-informed services, in how to be victim-centered, those kinds of things. And we just kind of stumbled through it. 
The things that I'm disappointed in are that there's still no funding really for victim services, uh, that the profession is not viewed by a lot of people as a profession. They still see it as kind of a volunteer uh, kind of situation, and it isn't at all. Uh, there, there are special skill sets that are involved, and um, I would like to see that changed. So in addition, well, as, as, opposed, as opposed to the strides, the many strides that have been made, the ones that you mentioned in terms of professional careers, um, there are still a lot of misconceptions around in victim services, particularly even in sexual assault response. How do you debunk those misconceptions that have hung around? Uh, I, th I think all of us have to do that. And there are some people that are never going to be convinced. They're never going to understand that sexual assault is not about sex. It is an assault. It is about anger, power, and control. Um, and, and people, there are some people that just will never understand or accept that. And until you understand that there is a victim and a perpetrator, um, I think it's very difficult. So we, we have to continue to educate the public. And certainly we have to continue to educate allied professionals, police, uh, medical people. The, the counseling uh, behavioral health field still uh, lacks knowledge about this issue. and sexual assault from childhood sexual assault through uh, the lifetime is remarkably high, especially for women. So we need to understand that that is a history that a lot of people carry with them. So those barriers are pretty prominent um, in the general public and in, in the services community. What about barriers specific to victims that, that you've encountered? I think the biggest one, and it, it always has been the biggest one, and I think still is, is victim blaming and victim shaming. Um, and I think that, you know, the more education that we provide to people, the more sympathetic they become, but they still tend to blame the victim for becoming a victim of a violent crime. In the last 10, 15 years, we've begun to hear the phrase trauma-informed a lot more in the realm of advocacy. What does trauma-informed mean to you? Um, first of all, I think it means that we acknowledge that the people that we're working with, the victims and survivors, have in fact survived the trauma, often many traumas. And we are beginning to understand more and more the impact that trauma has not only on our psychological well-being and emotional well-being, but our physical health as well. And we know that trauma, in fact, induces biological responses and that those biological responses impact the brain and how we think, what we believe, and how we feel. And so trauma-informed approach to services 
means that we not only acknowledge the trauma and understand how it impacts people, how trauma impacts people, but we also try to provide services in, we call it a victim-centered way, so that we reduce the chances that we will be, we in providing our services will uh, enhance the trauma, make it worse, or create other trauma for the victim. In the context of victim-centered advocacy, a lot of that advocacy is provided in the criminal legal system, which in and of itself can be traumatizing. What corrections, what changes need to occur within the criminal legal system to better support survivors? Actually, you know, the, the technical term for that is secondary trauma. Uh, and an, ex an easy example is uh, victims usually, well, they never get to choose, for example, when their court date comes up. They're just informed you know, this is your court date and you need to be here and you need to testify. So victims, because they have been victimized, were powerless at one point. I mean, you know, they they struggled. And the system in many cases emphasizes that power powerlessness and recreates it in many situations. I would love to see some really strong changes to the statutes, the legal statutes in Oklahoma. I would like to see uh, enhanced and continued training of the criminal justice system, including police, prosecutors, judges, the entire system from top to bottom, and including the correction system as well, because sexual assault does occur uh, in that system. So I think a, a lot more training and sensitivity about trauma, especially the trauma of sexual assault and how it impacts people's lives would be very helpful. All of those systems changes seem really comprehensive and very involved with lots of moving parts, but we also are often asked the question on an individual basis, what can we do to help? What is a simple thing that anybody can do? To help support a victim or a survivor? Believe them. Meet them where they are. If they disclose to you, believe them. Uh, don't ask, what did you do to deserve it? Uh, or blame or shame them. That's, that's one thing. Another thing is to get them connected to places like the Y and other domestic violence and sexual assault services in the state that understand the issue and can provide very specific, specific supportive services for victims and survivors. Your work in advocacy has spanned decades and multiple systems. How has that work evolved since you first started? Again, sometimes I feel like there is an incredible world of difference that it has grown, it has become, like I said, more professionalized, that we're doing the work that we do in a much better, more victim-centered way, and that it's much more healing and helpful 
to victims. And sometimes I think that we're stuck. I mean, often, often in meetings, statewide or certainly when I used to go to the national meetings, I hear advocates debating the same issues that they were debating in the late 70s and early 80s. And if we're debating those issues, why don't we identify steps that we can take to make the changes that need to be made instead of debating them over and over and over again? That is my big frustration is we, and and some of them are within our own profession, but some of them are systemic. You know, we're, we're still uh, banging our heads against the same brick walls in, in a lot of cases. Um, so we've made some great strides. We still have, there, there's still lots of work to do in the field. So if anyone is interested in this field, come on in because you'll have a job. I so, promise. So what would you say to those people? What advice would you offer those people who are just starting out in the realm of victims? Two things, two things for sure is make sure that you have have addressed your own specific biases and your own issues. And if you have recovery that needs to happen, make it happen before you start working with victims because you don't want your own trauma to influence the way you interact with victims as a professional. And the other thing is self-care self-care, self-care. You cannot do this work if you do not take care of yourself. You've done this work on the front lines in a couple of different respects. You've done this work as an administrator. You've done this work in the halls of the Capitol. (laughs) You've done this work across the nation. Um, And you've done this work as an educator. (laughs) How does the role of an advocate differ from the role of an educator? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think I still do advocacy as an educator, uh, but, but they are a little different, especially in a university setting. Uh, it's different than training like a, like a group at church or something like that, because you're training, you're giving specific resources, skills, and knowledge that they will carry into the field. Um, So your part-time coach saying you can do this and you might want to rethink this this piece of where where your thinking is Um, and your part-time educator uh, training, you know, providing information practicing skills, assessing where they are. Did they learn this or did they learn this well enough to be able to do it in the field? Um, so it, it, they're in, in many respects, they're the same, but in others, they're not at all alike. Well, and even in the role of an educator, you've performed that in multiple facets too. You've been an, uh, an educator for a coalition, for a state, as a consultant and in the university world. 
What are you the most proud of in that realm of academics? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. It just seemed like my normal life path. I I have learned from each of those experiences. And I hope that uh, my my hope is that I have paid it forward, that I have shared those uh, life lessons, shall we call them, and the, the lessons that I learned with people who are coming into the field or who are in the field to help them avoid the same pitfalls, you know, that I faced. That sounds like a real uh, reward of this work. Are there others that occur to you right now? Uh, the field of advocacy. The rewards in the field of advocacy. Oh my goodness! I I think the the most incredible rewards are the rewards that you see when you're working with victims and survivors, and you see the growth and healing uh, within each individual. Um. I refer to it as the caterpillar and the butterfly, seeing people reestablish life post-trauma, knowing that their lives will never be the same as they were before the trauma occurred, but living, in many cases, an even richer life afterwards because of the skills that they've learned and there's probably a lot of work in advocacy and activism that's very, um, very rewarding. But we all we know that there's a lot of primness as well. You mentioned self care mm -hmm. as advice for advocates. What do you do to take care of yourself when things get grim? Um, friends and family, first of all, I I have an incredible uh, and supportive groups, a group of friends and family. Um, I also dig in the dirt. I like to garden. That's kind of a creative release for me, especially in the, in the spring and summer. I have a dog that, uh, keeps me sort of sane. She's trained and she, if I am getting angry or tense, she comes and sets down and leans on me and reminds me that I need to calm down. And also, I have to say, um, I think you, I think you have to have a sense of humor to do this work. And sometimes I know within the field, some of that humor is sometimes dark, but we understand each other, and it's a way to release some of the tension and the gravity. I mean, this is not this is not a field that you enter into thinking, oh, I'll just do it because first of all, you're not going to make a ton of money doing it. But you're not going to you can't do it just to have a job. I think that advocacy is a calling. And I think you know very quickly whether this is your cup of tea or not. And other people around you also pick up 
pick that up. I mean, people who have been advocates for a while can tell when a new person comes in whether they're going to be a really good advocate or not. And you can tell it really pretty quickly. We've seen, uh, we've heard and seen a lot lately about all of the intersections with advocacy, how one movement was born out of another, which was born out of another, and really examining all of those intersections of isms. Mm -hmm. What movements or, or other, other forms of activism are inspiring you right now? Well, probably my first um, form of activism was in the feminist movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And that still is the basis of my philosophy. And um, I still see the world very, very much through that lens. Um, the Me Too movement is a recent one that certainly uh, caught people's attention. Um, I think it was freeing for some people and painful for others, um, but but it did bring attention to to the issue of sexual assault and to the numbers of survivors that are truly there. Um, those are the two. Those are the two big ones, probably. On paper, you're retired. Yes. In reality, what's next for you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to stay pretty busy. Um, I'm still teaching part time. Um, I do consult with a couple of agencies on cases that they have that involve domestic violence and sexual assault and stalking sometimes. Um, I'm working on a project for. Uh, domestic violence and sexual assault workers in the state. So I seem to, I seem to be busy. My, one of my best friends reminds me frequently, but you're retired. <laughs> so I guess retirement is, I, this feels like retirement to me, but I guess it's not what a lot of people imagine when they think of retirement. What would you like any listeners to take away from our chat? Um, to be more sensitive and aware of the issue of sexual assault, to believe and to support victims and survivors, uh, to help their the people in their lives, their families and friends, understand what may be some sometimes it are helpful things and sometimes are not helpful things so that they can feel supported by the people that are important to them. And to, to just be aware uh, that it's not the victim's fault. Uh, the fault lies with the perpetrator and the perpetrator solely. Thank you so much for joining us today. For more information about the services provided by YWCA OKC or to get involved as a volunteer, visit our website, ywcaokc.org.
Don't miss our Facebook Live Q&A on April 30th at 1 p.m. You can text questions to 918-921-0123. See you next week on Spill the Tea Tuesday. Bye.